Hello and welcome back to Author Conversations, presented this week by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and this week we explore the hidden history of East Texas. The heritage of East Texas partakes in the same degree of unexpected turns and hidden deaths as its back roads and bayous. One line of inquiry meanders into another. Start out searching for LaSalle's grave and end up chasing Spanish gold in Upshire County. From Sam Houston's Bible to the Longview nightclub that hosted both Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley, one tale follows another and introduces a cast of characters that include Candace and Peter L. Speen, Old Rip, Jack Loomis, and Vernon Wayne Howell. Part the pine curtain with Tex Medkiff for a history as heated as the LaGrange Chicken Ranch's parlor and irresistible as a batch of golden sweet potatoes. Tex Midkiff is a writer, storyteller, local historian, and retired VP of an international security concern. A featured columnist for the Community Chronicle and Fence Post Magazine, Tex and his wife, Loana, reside at Lake Fork near Yantis, Texas. Tex, thanks for joining me. Hi, Johnny. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you. Yourself? I'm good. I'm, I'm uh, glad to be with you today. Great, great. Well, first things first. How was the great name of Tex bestowed upon you? Well, it's uh, probably because of my accent. As I uh, traveled around the country in my career, everywhere I'd go, as soon as I'd open my mouth, they'd, they'd ask me what part of the Bible Belt I was from. And so I would always tell them Texas, of course. And sooner or later, I just got tired of that, and I just took up the nickname Tex. And it started calling me Tex, and I just went with it. That makes absolute sense. Yeah, <laughs> that is, uh, you know, when you when you travel outside of the South, you know, a lot of people in the South tell me I don't have an accent, but as soon as I travel somewhere else, they tell me, you know, they ask me where I'm from. So I completely, completely understand where you're coming from with that, one hundred percent. Now, yeah, I, I never thought I had an I never thought I had a accent until I went to California, and then. Uh, after living there about a year, I realized when I came home that everybody talked different. Yeah, we were when we took a trip to up north. You know, we went to you know we used to take trips buying antiques and everything. And we were in New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine, and they you know were asking us about our accent. And we just felt like we didn't have an accent; they had an accent, so we didn't exactly. we didn't know exactly. what they were talking about. So, but I mean, it's neat to hear all the different accents in our country. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a neat place. It still is a neat place, I think. Now you know what? Even if someone hasn't been to the great state of Texas, there's something about your state that captures the imagination. And I visited Texas last year, and I love Georgetown area, and I got to visit Waco and the Dr Pepper Museum there, and I visited the amazing Texas Ranger Museum, and I got to experience a true Texas thunderstorm outside of an old gas station turned antique store. And while I was there, the brisket was incredible. It lived up to expectations, and the people were some of the kindest I've ever met. It was everything I hoped for, Tex, from a trip to your state. Your state lived up to the expectations. Why does Texas capture our imaginations, even if someone hasn't been there? Well, as we always say, everything is bigger and better in Texas. You know, no matter what you talk about in Texas, somebody's got a bigger or better story. And we're blessed to have such a wide variety of things in Texas. We have beaches, a desert, and mountains, and uh, just about anything you want to have. And a very, very, very true history of how we became Texas. And uh, 
how we've how we've earned earned this honor to brag about our state. Yeah, it, the book doesn't focus on the it doesn't focus on the whole state. It focuses on East Texas. It is the hidden history of East Texas, and you have a deep family history here that you write that out in the book, and it's a you know a cornucopia of history. In just this part of the state, um, would you mind sharing with us a bit about the section of the book entitled Rocking the Cradle of Texas um, Liberty Story? Because it also really ties into the birth of Texas you were just talking about and your relation um, to Candace Midkiff Bean. Yes, it's really the it's really the basis for my interest in Texas history. Uh, I've lived in uh, East Texas all of my life and uh, uh, the Midkiffs uh, came to Texas as early as 1823. But even before that, uh, Candace's husband, Peter Ellis Bean, was on the Philip Nolan expedition in the early 1800s when Texas was still Spain. He actually fought for the Mexicans to overthrow the Spanish government and make it Mexico. And as a result of that, he was given various land grants in what we now call Texas. And he moved to my great-great-great-aunt Candace and my great-great-grandfather, Isaac Jesse Midkiff, he moved him to Texas in a wagon train and, uh, and arrived in 1821, where they settled first at uh, Mound Prairie, which is uh, where the Caddo and Indian Mounds are near Alto. Later, they moved on over to Grimes County to Beat Eyes, Texas, and we've had a homestead there called Sand Hill ever since. Wow. And, you know, it, when I think about Texas, and I mentioned earlier, I got to go to that Texas Ranger Museum, and it's incredible. And Yes, my, my great-great-grandfather, yeah. Isaac Jesse Midkiff, was a Texas Ranger on two different occasions. Mm-hmm. Back during back during the time when, after the Revolution, we became the Republic of Texas, our own country, uh, people were called into service by the Texas Rangers for short periods of time. Uh, Isaac Jesse was a ranger on two different uh, instances for 30 days. And this was mainly because of Indian scares and other things that were going on in the territory. Now, before the Texas Rangers were what we know them today as the, the law enforcement agency, and, I mean, they did things, you even have a little bit in the book about them, and a tie into the book, too, about... Um, tied to Bonnie and Clyde also, and there's a great exhibit there in the museum too, dealing with Bonnie and Clyde. Um, but earlier in the, you know, the early history of the Texas Rangers, can you tell us a little bit about their early history before they were the Texas Rangers that we know them today? Well, they, they basically started as a, uh, a force to protect the settlers from the Indians and, uh, there'd be various Indian scares and they'd, take on an additional group of rangers in, in various companies around the state and, uh, you know, just try to keep peace for the settlers. Uh, from there, they, when the Texas became a state, then they were organized as a law enforcement department. And, uh, you know, most people are familiar with Frank Hamer, who was a private, uh, previous Texas ranger who uh, was uh, the main uh, person behind the capture of Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that exhibit there is really cool too. And you know, you talk about Blanche, who was uh, who was Clyde's sister-in-law, um, I believe, uh, if I remember that Blanche section. Of the book. Yeah, if I remember that section of the book right. And the that picture you included with it is uh, 
of her capture is one that always sticks with me because if I remember when Bonnie and Clyde history right, she was kind of she had been wounded, and when the camera was going to take her photograph, she thought that they were about to shoot her when she was being uh, actually arrested at that time. So it's a really you know interesting picture from that time and uh, yeah, from that time in history, and she survives that whole thing. So yes, she did. She she lived on for a number of years and was fairly uh, well known in the Dallas Fort Worth areas. And uh, uh, when they made the movie, she was uh, a, uh, a set extra and expert on the movie when they made it. And uh, she was uh, very very well known for that. Yeah, just an interesting whole interesting story. A whole you know an interesting person, an interesting life. Uh, not one I myself would want to lead, but. Uh, it's an interesting time period in the, in the country's history. Now, the book is full of history that you would expect, even longhorn cattle stories. Um, apparently, they are not good milk cows, <laughs> I've learned, uh, and Old West shootouts. But I don't think 1907 text when I think about Old West shootouts, but apparently I was wrong. And I guess because 1907 feels too modern, even though it was 113 years ago. Um, would you say that maybe this was the last real Old West shootout and give us a little bit of the story, a little background of the story? Well, it probably wasn't the last shootout, but it was typical of uh, shootouts in, th- in those days. They're not exactly as they're portrayed in the movies. Uh, uh, two uh, uh, relatives were part of the law enforcement, and the two uh, bad guys were related as well. And uh, it was known around town that there was a few uh between them and well so one saturday night they ended up in the same uh, bar area and uh, the law enforcement tried to arrest the bad guys and a shootout resulted hmm. and also didn't expect to read about ufos in the state of texas in the longhorn state um, and also though, didn't expect a few weeks ago for the navy to come out and say recently that yeah they had ufos on tape and they didn't know what these objects were, but Texas had sightings dating back to the late 19th century. Were you surprised to learn about this part of East Texas history? Or is it a well-known part of Texas legend and lore now? Well, as I, as I said earlier, everything is bigger and better in Texas, and UFO stories are also. The uh, Aurora crash that you referred to in 1897 is a legend in that part of the country. The uh, Supposedly, the spacecraft crashed into one of the uh, farmer's uh, windmills and uh, landed, and they pulled a body out of the crash and buried it in their local cemetery. And uh, that story is, uh, you know, hung around the, the tales of uh, Texas since uh, uh, 1897. Uh, since then, we've had many uh, UFO sightings in Texas. The Stephenville sightings were fairly prominent at one time, and the uh, Cash Lundrum case down in uh, close to uh, Dayton, Texas, is the only known case where they, they actually sued the government over the UFO sightings. Is that right? Suing the government over UFO sightings? Wow. I knew we live in a litigious yeah, society. Left, but... they, they, were left in very, they were left in very bad health as a result of that sighting, and they had uh, radiation burns and radiation poisoning, and so they sued the government in an attempt to uh, recover some damages on that uh, but, you know, the government uh, is pretty well held harmless. We have UFOs. So we go from the UFOs now to the events on November 22nd, 1963. 
and you include these events in the book. And with someone with your background, and I've read people will hear your background um, when they when they listen to the intro earlier in the podcast, writes and brings up events surrounding Oswald's last phone call and a connection between the CIA and the mayor of Dallas. You know, I take it seriously uh, more than I would from one of uh, less reputable sources. And it's a subject that is still one of interest to in many Americans, and it's a fascinating part of the book. Um, do you have any hunches of what else might come to light when more documents might be released? Well, I found it extremely interesting that uh, uh, Donald Trump refused to release the uh, remaining documents uh, uh, on the Kennedy assassination. I think if uh, Trump was afraid to release it, then it must be something really powerful because uh, I thought for sure he would after this period of time, release all the information so we'd be able to get to the bottom of some of it. Yeah, because he really uh, did, he was really gung-ho about releasing it. And it's, he was, he, yeah, you're right. Sorry, go he ahead. Was, he was until the last minute, and all of a sudden he decided that it shouldn't be released yet. So uh, there's a future date that he's going to reconsider that, and hopefully he will. Uh, I think the majority of the American public now believe that Oswald probably did at least fire one shot out of the school book depository, but I think very few people think that he acted alone or that that was all just his idea. I, I, I'll i be honest with you, I really did think that he did it until all of this happened now with the documents and not wanting to release all the other documents because now I kind of feel like where there's smoke, there's a fire. And so that made me more skeptical of the whole thing. Um and it seems like more people feel that way now, too. Uh, so I don't know. I'm excited to see, or well, I wouldn't like to say excited to see. Um, but I guess I am excited to see, though, uh, what happens in the future with more documents coming out. It's just one of those uh, weird things where, you know, I mean, you know, maybe it's one of those things where you can't believe that you have the fragility of life and there was such, you know, that an American president could be taken out by just one person like that. Like it has to be some kind of deep conspiracy but i mean then again with you know not being able to release these document like documents like they're doing maybe maybe it is a big conspiracy or a deeper conspiracy um so maybe one day we'll be able to see well absolutely after what we're seeing today the things that are being uh, found out that's happened that were covered up it's certainly possible to see that there might have been a cover-up in those days Uh, i was in the seventh grade when uh, JFK was assassinated, and I was watching TV live when Lee Harvey Oswald was killed by uh, uh, Jack Ruby. And I've been a buff ever since. I've been a uh, history buff and a uh, assassination buff since that time. And I'm hoping that before I die, some more of the story will come out, and I'll be able to be able to close that chapter and uh, those uh, tragic events in Dallas in '63. Yeah, you know, one thing that I've ever since this too, I've always started wondering is just how, cause I hear different stories about, you know, cause there were some people who loved him in Dallas and some people who didn't love him in Dallas and just, you know, how it was, and I know you were in seventh grade and I can remember some things from when I was in seventh grade. I don't know if you can or not, but how did Dallas in Texas change that time after the assassination, assassination oh, well. of the president? The assassination had a tremendous effect on Dallas itself. Uh, uh, Dallas was a very, very conservative city at that time, and there was a lot of sentiment against JFK at the time, and that has mellowed through the years. And 
and uh, the voting population of Dallas has changed, and now D- Dallas is basically a, a Democratic city and is uh, totally different than the uh, uh, conservative base that it had in 1963. Yeah, I mean, just the the, what the suppose his last words said to the president in his reply of was it the mayor of Dallas who said you can't who said to the president and you can't or the mayor's wife who said you can't say the people of Dallas don't love you and then he replied no I certainly cannot that was, actually that was John that was uh, John Connolly the governor's wife okay yeah said, mr president you can't mr president you can't say that Texas doesn't love you now that's just uh it's kind of the chilling crowds, in a way. the crowds were con- Yes, it is. The crowds were tremendous that day, though. The people were just thrilled to have him there in Dallas, except for one faction. Yeah. You know, in Texas, we've talked a little bit of conspiracy and UFOs and suing the government over radiation burns from UFO sighting. But I want to end on a fun note, and I want you to tell us a little bit about the REO Palm Isle Club. Rio Palm Isle. Yeah, Rio Palm. I don't know why I keep calling it Rio, but R-E-O, but yes, Rio Palm Isle. A very famous landmark in East Texas. Uh, Most of the people that have lived here most of their lives, if you say the Rio, they say, I was there. I saw Elvis there. I saw Frank Sinatra there. I saw the big bands back during the 30s, if they're old enough, and uh, Tommy Dorsey and Frank Sinatra. And... uh, one of the interesting things is that if you live long enough, you had a chance to see uh, not only Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley, but Willie Nelson there later in the year. So it's been quite a uh, a um, place in East Texas for uh, music, everything from big bands to country and western. It's just so it's just an eclectic place to see all kinds of different types of live music throughout these years. Absolutely. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to see somebody like Frank Sinatra and then Elvis really getting a start early on in his career there. Uh, that's that's stuff that's mind blowing to think about to me. When it when it opened and it had one of the largest dance floors in uh, anywhere west of the Mississippi, uh, uh, and really had big the big bands really brought in good crowds. You know, I lied. There's one more thing I want to ask you about because it's something I've always wanted to see. Maybe I'll get to see it one day because my brother is stationed out in Texas right now. And that's uh, that's Big Tex. I've always wanted to see Big, Big Tex. Tex. Yeah, can you just tell us a little bit about Big Tex for those that don't know? Well, the interesting thing about Big Tex is that before he was Big Tex, he was the world's largest Santa in Kearns, Texas, which is about a 100 miles south of Dallas. And uh, he was at for several Christmases, and uh, a promoter uh, sold it to people at the uh, State Fair in Texas, and they moved it and put cowboy clothes on him and made some adjustments, and uh, he became Big Tex. Another interesting part about the fair is most people think it's always been in Dallas, but er- the early years of the fair in the, the late uh, uh, 1800s, the fair was in Houston, Texas. So uh, it's not always been in Dallas, but it's become a annual event in Dallas since that time. A lot of famous football games have been played in the Cotton Bowl at, at uh, State Fair Park, where uh, Big Tex is. Tex, it was a pleasure talking with you. 
And thank you, the audience, for joining me. Hidden History of East Texas will be available on July 27th, 2020, wherever local books are sold and online at ArcadiaPublishing.com. While you're at ArcadiaPublishing.com, you can also type in your zip code in the search bar and see what books we have on your town. Don't see a book on your town? Want to write a book on your town, state or region? Scroll down to the bottom of any page on our site and click the Make Me an Author button. Have questions for me or show suggestions? See me an email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. As always, I want to thank Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the podcast theme song. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram under Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk with you soon.